What exactly does the head of sports science for the Matildas do? What goes into the work of the sports science department in a footballing context? How are the Matildas planning to peak ahead of the gigantic opportunity that is a home Women's World Cup? In the wake of Ellie Carpenter's unfortunate ACL injury, how is the team looking to protect themselves? And indeed, why are ACL injuries such a blight on women's sport? I'm your host, Joey Lynch, and this is Beyond the Lead with Jack Sharkey. The modern football team is an ecosystem in and of itself. Thousands of moving parts working, in a perfect world, in tandem to empower 11 players to go out and put the ball in the back of the net more times than 11 opposition players over the course of 90 minutes. Increasingly in the modern game, the role of sports science is taking on an ever-growing role in this space and, for the Matildas, this is where Jack Sharkey comes in. Formerly with English sides Burton Albion, Queen's Park Rangers and Aston Villa, Sharkey is now on the international stage entrusted with monitoring the physical well-being of players and putting in place regimes that are not only there to help make them peak for the next match day, but on the biggest stage of them all in 2023. Speaking to myself, Joey Lynch, Sharkey gave an insight into how his day-to-day work surrounding the Matildas is structured, the nature of sports science in and of itself, and some of the principles that he uses to guide him in making sure that it's not just the likes of Sam Kerr, Steph Catley and Caitlin Ford that are at their best when they get the call, but even players that are find themselves on the Matildas fringes. But in the wake of Ellie Carpenter's unfortunate injury suffered in the Champions League final, the clown of ACL injuries continues to hang over not just the Matildas, but all of women's sport. Sharkey provided an insight into what he thinks some of the reasoning for the rash of ACL injuries are, as well as diving into how the Matildas, as well as the young and junior Matildas, are looking to protect their players. But first, Sharkey gave me a bit of an insight into exactly what a head of sports science at a football club does. Well, depends on the, the club environment you're in. So without going too much in the history of sports science, sports science has been around as a profession within football for the best part of 30 years now, um, 30 to 40 years. Um, and that that position and those responsibilities will vary depending on the club that you're in. Um, but I suppose being as broad as possible, a sports scientist is responsible for maximising the athletic potential of that team. Um, that comes through a number of different ways, uh, looking at nutrition, sleep, uh, what you're doing in the gym, analysing training loads, making sure you're peaking for tournaments and games. But basically, we're there to maximise the athletic capabilities of individual players and ultimately the whole team to to carry out the, the tactical objectives of the coach or manager. Mm. And now your own experiences, looking across your resume, it certainly feels like you've worked in a lot of really elite environments. What are your experiences in the field and how did you come to lands with the Matildas in the build-up to the Women's World Cup in 2023? Yeah, it, it feels like a long time in the game. But yeah, um, I, suppose, I suppose my background has been predominantly in clubland. Um, as you mentioned, Jackson Irvine, I was at Burton Albion. That's where I first started started this profession. That was back 10 years ago. So that was just before he actually joined the club. Um, but basically, I, I went through the academic route. So there's a number of different ways you can get into sports science. I went through academia. So 
um, undergraduate degree, master's in exercise physiology um, before getting that first time gig at, at my local club, Burton Albion. And then from there, it's just been moving from club to club, really. Not too many. I'm not a, a journeyman as, as such, but I went from Burton Albion uh, to Queen's Park Ranger with the manager at the time, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. Uh, spent just over a season there and then moved on to Aston Villa, uh, where Steve Bruce was the manager at the time. Um, and I was there for the best part of, what, five years. Um, so obviously during that time, we had relevant or oh, relative success. And then, yeah, after, after that five years, I was looking for that new challenge, that next step. And um, I was approached by Football Australia to come into the Matildas environment. And I just grasped it with both hands. It was a, an opportunity I just couldn't turn down. Mm. Well, as you mentioned, working in club lanes, you're now working in international football. And, you know, obviously there would appear to be a number of sizable difference. You get to see the players for much less time being the yeah. most obvious one. I'm imagining what are some of the differences in club, uh, club sports science versus international football sports science? I think, I think, the, the stark reality between the two, I think you just touched on that there, is that actual contact time with players. When when you're in a club environment, you're in every day, pretty much. You, you're lucky if you get a day off a week. Um, you've got to think and make decisions on the spot. If you make the wrong decision, you just have to get on with it and carry on. Um, and it's unrelenting. like it, It's just non-stop for, <laughs> for the full season. You get a few weeks off in the off-season, then you're back in it again. Um and I suppose in that environment, say if you do have an unsuccessful performance or you lose a game, it doesn't matter because you've got another game in a few days, you have to get over it and, and crack on. Whereas with the national team environment, it's it's a longer period in between, between those camps. If you have a negative result, you have to sit and dwell on that <laughs> um, for a longer period of time. Um, and that contact time you actually have with players, you have to be so efficient uh, with, with that contact time because... Literally, you you might not see them in in person for 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 weeks on end, um, and I think that's where that relationship you have not only with the player but with the clubs becomes such an important part of that position with the national team. Um, because if you don't have that relationship um, and cohesive um, connection with with the club environment that they're at, then you really reduce the amount of contact time and influence you can have over these players. Mm. Was that a real challenge for you coming in? Because just examining this Matilda's team so now, obviously there's a lot of players playing in England, but there's in Scandinavia, France. Um, yeah. There, yeah, there has been locally Australian-based players, players in the United States. I mean, is it a case of you're just up trying to work the time zones and stay in touch with everybody? Has that been a real <laughs> shift for you? Yeah. Um, like I said, football is football. Like you, it, I don't think time actually applies to the constraints of working in a football environment, whether in club or national team, to be honest. Um, like at Clubland, you'd be getting back from games at well, two, three, four o'clock in the morning. You go straight into a recovery session. It was it doesn't really make much sense. Um, but yeah, with, with the national team, we have a number of players. We've got 10 of our regular first team players playing in England. Uh, we have a good significant number playing in Sweden. A um, couple in France. So with that time difference over here, it's not actually too bad. It makes a lot more sense for me to, to be based here so I can actually pick up the phone, speak to clubs without having to get up in the middle of the night. Um, but no, it, look, I'm, I'm used to taking calls at midnight, one o'clock in the morning or getting up at five o'clock in the morning to do uh, uh, meetings with the office. So that's not, <laughs> not an issue at all for me. Mm. 
as you've just talked us through, you've worked at some pretty big clubs. And I mean, you know, maybe they're not the size of Man United or Man City, but in world football, they're still relatively quite big clubs compared to what we're used to around the world. You know, Villa and QPR and I guess even Burton. Like when yeah. you're going into work in those clubs, what what's some of the facilities and resources that are being put into those teams to make sure that they are operating at peak capacity? Um, it, it depends on the environment you're in. Um, so just referencing the last club was Aston Villa. We had large financial backing. We had two owners who were billionaires, basically. Um, and that's not always... Does that always doesn't reflect whether you get the right facilities as well? Sometimes the owners will be saying, Right, I only want to pump that money into the wages of the players, and I don't really care about sports science as sports. So you have to have the backing from the owners as well. Um, but we were fortunate that we had the uh the backing certainly from one of the owners to develop a, a new high performance center. They gave us a few million pounds to design whatever we wanted. Um and yeah, it's it's state of the art, and it's fascinating how quickly they can can go out of date as well. I've been fortunate to visit a number of these big clubs that you mentioned and look at their training grounds behind the scenes, and they date quickly. Like you, I won't name the actual specific clubs, but you go there and you think that the equipment's dated, the facility layout is just not um, what a, a top world club team should have at the time uh, at this moment in time. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been fortunate, certainly at Aston Villa, to, to, to train in, in, a, in a high performance environment. Even, even with Burton Albion, we trained at St. George's Park, which is the national uh, centre for, for England. So we train there on a daily basis. Um, but for me, it, it counts for nothing unless you have the right staff and the right mentality of the players around you. So I've, I've been in environments where there wasn't much equipment, there wasn't much facilities that you could work with. But you had the right characters and the will of the individuals to, to, to work in the gym or work on the pitch. And that's all that matters. You can put bells in it. You can put um, all the money you want thrown at these training facilities. But without the right characteristics and environment and culture within that team, honestly, it counts for absolutely nothing. It counts for nothing. Um, if anything, people become complacent in environments because they think, oh, this is great. I'm, I'm in a great environment but it, it detracts from are they actually willing to, to work hard and, and take themselves to those, those areas and, and, and states where it's uncomfortable. Mm. Um, yeah. And obviously another major difference between your previous stints and now is that previously, I imagine you've mostly been working with men. Now you're working yep. with a women's football team. What are some, uh, I mean, obviously a lot of stuff stays the same, but physiologically there's some differences as well. You know, yeah. there's reproductive health and everything that you don't need to worry about with the men's team that you do the women's team. How do the, how do the two differ? Yeah, the, I, I get asked that question a lot. Now, I've, I've worked with female athletes before. This is my first time uh, working with, with female athletes. Um, obviously, this is the first time I'm working in a team environment with female athletes. Um, yes. Biologically, there, there are variances in, in what you need to be concerned about, whether that is nutrition and the terminology you use in that area um, or menstrual health and how that influences performance. But to be honest, the research in that area is still very limited. There is a lot of work that needs to be done. And within Football Australia, we are looking at, at trying to understand how menstrual health and influences performance. But I think without being too gener generalistic here, 
one thing I found certainly coming into the Matildas environment is the the willingness to learn from the individuals. They are so appreciative of the things you're doing in the gym, what you're doing on the pitch. It's actually difficult to get them off the pitch at the end of a training session because they want to stay out there and, and be better and improve. And, and it's, for me personally, refreshing to, to work with athletes like that. Um, don't go wrong, I've worked with, with some of the best, but you tend to find when you're in that club land, they just want to go home. <laughs> they just want to clock in, clock out and go home. Whereas the Matilda's environment is, is so different to that. They want to come in. They want to, they want to better. They want to improve. They, they have a purpose behind what they're doing, which is probably deeper than what a lot of the athletes I've worked with before have had. Um, I feel like they're, they're on a mission to, to prove something to, to the world. Do you think that's like one of the differences between club and international, like club, it's their job in a way versus international football it's like an honor they're representing their country there's that different dynamic yeah yeah certainly and, and you hear that that spoken about in the in the dressing room and around the team a lot it's it's what we're actually trying to achieve it's inspiring the next generation it's it's showing that what they've been through in their upbringing to get to where they are in the national stage they want to make it easy for the next generation to it because a lot of this these players have gone through Tremendous amount of sacrifice um, to to get to this level. Look, it's it's only in the, in the last last decade or so where that that infrastructure and the amount of money that's being pumped into the game is starting to increase. And they're of a generation where they didn't necessarily have that growing up, so they really want to inspire and, and make the 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 environment a level playing field. And that's that's humbling in a sense, because it's not just a case of you going out there to win a game. It's about going out there to, to prove a point. Um, and when when you have that, that I suppose, what do you call it? That driving force that has a deeper purpose behind it. Generally, that that success feels that a little bit more sweeter because you're actually achieving something for the country. Um, yeah, I've, I've yeah, I've, I've worked with plenty of national team players. And they they generally are more passionate about representing their country, but I think this is another level. I think this this group is something special right now. One thing I wanted to ask you about, maybe one of the differences between men's and women's football, we've seen in the women's space ACL injuries are a particular yeah. scourge, and it's not just in football. It, it feels like it's in every sport. The growth of women's football has been accompanied by significantly more ACL injuries. In the Matildas setup alone, we recently unfortunately saw Ellie Carpenter go down with one in the Champions League. Thinking back, Holly McNamara went down with well during the, as well during the most recent A-League women's season. What's the current science surrounding ACL injuries in female athletes and prevention of said ACL injuries? Um, again, with with women's football, female sport, and certainly women's football, research is limited. And it's certainly an area that the world needs to be better. We need to invest a lot more time in the in academia and the research around this. Um, when, when it comes specifically to ACL injuries and risk of injury, um, there, there's no questioning that there are preventative programs that you can put in place to try and mitigate and reduce the risk of, uh, of an ACL incident happening. Um, but there is, there's no doubt that the the risk and the number of ACL injuries is starting to rise. Now, it's hard to specifically say what the cause of this is, but participation is increasing. Um, the amount of load and burden put on these players throughout a season is increasing. Uh, you look at the last few years, specifically within the women's environment, 
that there's been no real break. So the, the last off season you had the Olympics and then before that you had COVID and then it was World Cup before that. And these players are playing week in, week out with no significant off season or no break uh, for not success seasons, but for years on end. And it's no surprise that you've got the number of ACL injuries starting to, to boost up. There was there was an article just yesterday in, in a paper over here in the UK talking about the risk of burnout with, with the Euros. So players have finished their, their domestic leagues and gone straight into a camp environment where um, they'll have a camp for four to five weeks before the Euros. And then before you know it, they're back into clubland football where they're getting prepared for the Champions League game. And again, it will be another cycle where they'll have another season. Then you've got the World Cup next year. When's the break? The, bo- the, bo- the body doesn't, <laughs> doesn't cope well when you have chronic training loads. Um, for such a long period of time. Now, don't get me wrong, chronic training loads and, and working at a higher level for longer periods of time creates robustness. That's how you typically get stronger. You can't wrap these players up in cotton wool, but there, there, there will be a limit and there is that risk of people call it burnout or overtraining syndrome if you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And as the game because does become more popular and more money is invested, there'll be this expectation that they should be playing more and more and more. Um, and there is a real need to to protect these players and say, right, have a break when you can have when when you when you need it. Um, so yeah, go, that's a long winded answer to your question, but that that's my my personal belief as to why ACL injuries are increasing. Um, I think there is a real need to to look into the actual causes of this from a, an academic and research perspective. Um, but ultimately the, the increasing loading and with no actual downtime in between seasons is going to be a, a significant result of that risk. So it sounds like load management, clearly one of the strategies being put in place. Are there any, are there any other prevention steps that the Football Australia takes with its um, athletes in the Matildas? I mean, does it maybe differentiate? Do the Matildas have to do some stuff into the young Matildas and junior Matildas, given the differences in training age and loads that they can handle, have to do different things? Yeah, so load management is, is going to be key. Um, now, you look at some of the younger age groups, there is a significant amount of training load going into, into these players because they're so desperate to make it. And um, because it is becoming a more competitive environment, there is a, there is a feeling that... Um, the more you do, the more successful you're going to be, which isn't necessarily the case. Um, but certainly, like I said, injury prevention programs and the actual strengthening work that you do in the gym has a strong relationship with reducing the risk of ACL injuries um, uh, and injuries in, in general. So within Football Australia, we have a, a good number of practitioners within within the future Matildas, uh, the young Matildas and certainly Matildas, where um, we're giving the players, not only the programs, but the education of what they should be doing on and off the field to try and reduce that risk. Um, look, sometimes I'm not saying that we need to reduce all the fixtures that they're going to do. That That's not how football works. Um, but if we can educate these players to take better control and onus on their own development, um, it'll only serve to, to reduce that risk. Um, and also when you get games thick and fast as well, where you've started to get players playing over 50 games within a season comparable with the men, um, then there needs to be a real shift and focus on recovery as well in between games um, and that education on what they should be doing for nutrition, sleep, um, actual additional recovery strategies, so ice baths, compression garments, that side of things, um, 
need needs to go in hand with that increase in load and burden as well. Is that something maybe we're seeing more and more um, in all levels of football, but especially the junior level now, there's school football, there's club football, there's representative football. It just feels like there's so much football for even kids that are 10, 11, 12 years. Is that something that parents and coaches need to be aware of as well? More is not always better in this space? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There, there is this conception or a belief that the more you do at an earlier age, the more chance you're going to be successful. And I think this stems from the 10,000 hour rule where people think you need to dedicate a significant amount of time to an activity to become world-class. That's not the case. It's not true. You, you need to, to enjoy sport. You need to have exposure to various amounts of sports and disciplines growing up. You take Jack Grealish, for instance, who I had the pleasure of working with. He, he wasn't on the training pitch like every single day uh, throughout his younger years. He, he was playing Gaelic football. He was playing some completely different discipline. Um for, for numerous years and then started to de dedicate himself at a, a later age. And the research actually suggests that it's only those who dedicate um, their time specifically to a, a sport in their middle teenage years is when they start to, well, they've got more chance of being successful and have a longer career. So yeah, more is not necessarily better when it comes to uh, uh, exposure to sport, but you, you're right. It does seem to be the case. I've, I've come across players who within some environments, I won't name specifics, where they're having to report to training grounds at, at five o'clock in the morning because that's when the coaches are available because they have all the part-time jobs. They, they train, um, start on the pitch at half past five, do a training session, then they're away, then they've got gym in the afternoon, then they've got other commitments. That's not healthy. <laughs> so there is, a, there is a need to, yes, educate, um, educate the... Uh, the, the parents and the athletes themselves, but there's also a need to continue to invest further within the coaches. So coaches don't need to have extra jobs on top of that so they can train at normal times. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's getting there, but there are certain certain areas we need to probably focus a little bit more time on as well. And you yourself, Jack, how did you feel when you saw the news come through that Ellie had gone down and she'd hurt her ACL? Because obviously she's such an important and beloved member of that yeah. Matilda's dressing room, but you in particular, you'd know better than most exactly what she's going to have to do across the course of the next 12 months. Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's one of the hardest things you have to, to come up against in football when you see a player take a significant injury. Um, it's Yes, it's part of the game. It happens. I've been unfortunate that I've worked with a number of athletes who've been in this situation and they're it's difficult. It's a long return to play process. It can feel lonely sometimes in, in, in that rehab room, in the, in the treatment room. But I'm confident that Ellie has the support around her, not only from the club, but also from the national team um, to get her through this process and come back stronger. Um, yes, it's, a, it's an injury, but it's nothing that we can't come through uh, and be better on the other end uh, as a result of it. So it's, yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking because when, you, when you're in this environment, like for, for most people, you see an injury like this and you think, oh, they're out and you don't really give it a second thought. When, when you're working with these people so often, it's almost like a family member and because you understand what they're going to have to go through, it is, it is harder to take. But like I said, I think because we are a family, we get around those individuals, get around those players and, and 
and support them all the way through that journey over the next over the next few months. And getting back to the load management aspect of yeah. things for a second, obviously there's lots of different types of load management. I think what was the micro, meso, and macro cycles and managing <laughs> yeah. all of that sort of stuff. On the micro side of things, Tony Gustafsson, after the first New Zealand game, when he was asked about his substitutions, he talked about how the data that he was being sent told yeah. him that the players were still good to keep going. They hadn't um, exerted enough energy or enough effort to force them to come off. Can yeah. you walk me through that process in a bit more detail about what he was talking about and how that looks during a game? Yeah, so there'll be a number of things that come out in the press where I understand there's probably not a, a true understanding of what that terminology means sometimes. So when you talk about loading within football, uh, you have what's called internal load and external load. External load is everything that you do mechanically on the pitch. So um, the amount of total distance cover, the amount of high-speed running, the accelerations, decelerations, number of sprints, that all the mechanical load that, that goes and locomotive load that goes through a player. Um, this is usually tracked through GPS, so little devices that you'll see on the back of, of their shirts, if you look closely enough, um, which obviously use GPS to track locomotive data, but then they have little sensors inside called accelerometers and gyroscopes, which look at the finer turns as well. Um, this information we, we take and, and we use that to, go, to govern how much they should be doing uh, on particular days and periodized throughout the training week and, and the camps. Um, there's two ways of getting this information. There is, we can do it retrospectively after the training where we download the information, we looked at it, but by sometimes that's too late to actually use that information to influence training. The other way is to use live data. So you'll typically notice when you're on the dugout, there's an iPad in front of one of the members of staff, typically myself, um, where that information is being directly fed into the iPad live. So we know how much they, they are actually uh, doing in the game. Now, with a national team environment, it's important to understand that we have players coming from a magnitude of different leagues, a, di a variety of different clubs, all working at different levels. Um, and one thing is definitely true is that when you're in a national team environment, those loads you're going to experience, in particular in the games, are going to be significantly higher than what you're experiencing in your domestic leagues. There's very few leagues in this world where it replicates the match demands and intensities of national team football. Um, so basically, we use all that information to decide and, and look at their loading to say, right, this is a spike, this is a drop, um, and how much we should be doing on the pitch. So during that particular game, for instance, we had a rough idea of how much loading these particular players should be doing. We noticed that the actual uh, way the game was playing out meant that their loading wasn't as high as it needed to be. Um, so it was safe for us to continue to uh, continue. Now, it's important to uh, understand as well, with loading, it's not an exact science. Like Just because their loading might spike doesn't mean they can't tolerate it. Uh, we just give our recommendations of what the risk would be if we carry on. Um, and in that situation, the risk wasn't, um, the risk of injury and not performing wasn't going to increase by them carrying on and staying on that pitch. Um, so that's, that's a long-winded answer again, but that's the way we look at loading uh, when during games and, and while you're on camp. And going back out a little bit more now, obviously we've got games against Spain and the Portuguese coming up um, yeah. for the Matildas, which is part of a long journey, as Gustafsson has said, to get them cherry ripe for the 2023 Women's World Cup. 
from a sports science perspective, how are you managing that and looking at that? Obviously, as you've said, they're coming off the back of the hellacious season. Season. What are you thinking right now and what advice are you giving the national team staff? So with this, with this upcoming camp, like I said, um, it's, it's important to look at the long-term picture and how we actually peak for the World Cup next year. Um, there is increasing evidence to show that if you continue to keep pushing and pushing and pushing further down the line, you're going to pay a price for it. So it's important to look at the longitudinal load, what they've done over the last two, three years, uh, and say whether this is the right time to take a break. Um, with the players, they're in various leagues. Some players are in the middle of their season during this camp, whereas some are in the middle of an off-season. So we need to be careful in terms of how we manage those players who are in the middle of an off-season. Now, one thing, uh, one way to look at it is, say, a typical player in men or women's team, during an off-season, a typical off-season, when they get it, they'll get five to six weeks off. But then they'll have a what six to eight week preseason just to get them up for the demands of that first game of the season. Just because they've had five to six weeks off, they'll take a significant amount of time to get them back up and build for the season ahead. Now, we have a camp in the middle of the off season where you've got typically six, six weeks off for these players. And then you're expected to play one of the best teams in the world, where, as I mentioned, the intensity of that game is going to be significantly higher than what they'd even experience in, in their own domestic leagues. So that rings a lot of alarm bells. If we don't prepare them appropriately during that time going into that camp, then it's going to be significant spike in load. It's going to be a significant increase in the risk of injury. It's not to say it's not possible and you can plan and build appropriately over these next few weeks um, going into that game, but then you need to assess, right, what is the best plan moving forward towards the World Cup? Is that the necessary approach to actually train consistently during this off-season, going into the World Cup, play this game, and then go into their respective seasons where they won't rest again until, until we lift that trophy in a year's time? So that they're the kind of questions that you're asking from a, a sports science perspective. And so, and that's something that will be asked every window that comes with that, who's, yeah. you know, who's struggling, who needs minutes, that sort of stuff. This is a constant process that will be adjusted as time goes by as with each window as the women's world cup approaches even though we are rapidly running out of windows yeah yeah it, it will be asked but um yeah don't get me wrong the the amount of contact time you have with players during these camps is very limited and you need to be as efficient as possible during these windows um and look we will cram in as much contact time with the players as much as possible um as a group and there will be some risks that we need to take during these windows to make sure that we've got enough contact time with them. Um, but it's certainly something we need to, to look at moving towards the World Cup next year. Is it when you're having these conversations and you're telling these players about load management, you talked about not being able to get them off the training track. If maybe some of them need to be rotated in and out of squads, is that an awkward conversation for you to have trying to tell them why they can't be called up for this window or that window and, yeah, you know, I imagine night. they're not too happy about it. <laughs> Look, players, and certainly when you're working with the best players, they just want to play. Yeah. They, they, sometimes they don't even care about anything else other than I just want to be on a pitch and play football. That's what their that's what their trade is. That's what they're good at. That's what they've been put on this earth to do. Um, and to actually say, well, from a loading perspective, you need to consider your minutes. It's it creates difficult conversations. But as long as you have that clarity and understanding with them as to why you're doing it, then it usually makes the situations 
a little bit more tolerable, but it's uh, it's always a difficult conversation to have. And as part of this journey, obviously you're planning out now, you're you know looking at Sam Kerr, Steph Catley, and you're planning out hopefully a rough outline of how they'll approach 2023. What do you do if, say, out of nowhere, some, you know, teenager, some 16, 17-year-old just bursts onto the scene and has to be picked for the Women's yeah. World Cup, but she hasn't done any of your prep work? You haven't gotten to know her. How do you adjust then? Uh, I'd like to think that situation doesn't arise. Unless, oh, actually, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm quite uh, happy if that situation arises. But um, we've got a good... A network of support staff around every potential candidate that could make it into this first team environment. Um, we're certainly not putting all our eggs into one basket and the amount of support that we give to a variety of players is 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 quite staggering actually. Um, so they get the same treatment and the same support that the your Sam Kers or Stephs would get. They get the same uh, support in terms of the programming, what we're doing on the training pitch, what we're doing in the gym. Um, one thing we've had quite a big effort to do is standardise, well, set our standards of what it takes to actually make it into this first team environment. What are the physical profile of athletes to break it into a into the national team, but to not only just get into the national team, but actually compete on the world stage and dominate the opposition. Like that, that's ultimately our, our target. We want to be a team that not only just goes into these tournaments, just be there. We, we truly believe we can be one of the most physically dominant teams within the, in, in world football. Um, so to do that, we set benchmarks, which is based off research, which is based off all the teams, which is based off our historic data. Um, back in November, we did a, a full physical screen of all the players to see, see where they're at physically. And, and that started that journey and that process towards the World Cup on where we need to be. Um, so by setting these standards and setting these benchmarks of what it what it takes to be uh, a Matilda or a world competing Matilda. Um, that's, that's then directed the support we give to these athletes. So everyone's on this journey towards this World Cup to, to peak further down the line. So you're doing all this, you're obviously communicating a ton with uh, all the players, all the different clubs, everything, communicating what they need to do, getting feedback from them. What's your communication like with Tony Gustafsson and his staff? What information are you giving them? What requests are you taking from them? How does that look? So with, with any successful football environment, um, you need to have a good, strong working relationship with your tactical, uh, tactical and technical uh, staff. Um, and I'm very fortunate that the environment we've got with this national team is, is it, like I said, it's a family. Like We can have very frank and open conversations on what is best to prepare these players. Um, and we always come to a, an agreement on, on how that should how that should look. Um, when you talk about football periodization, one thing it's worth noting is that it, it's quite different to a lot of periodization cycles that you mentioned. So I know you touched on it before about microcycles, mesocycles, that that type of periodization model. It actually, it's actually different within football. Certainly within the modern game, the, the actual periodization models that you follow differ slightly um firstly you have what's called a morpho cycle i don't want to throw loads of terms out but basically that's what you typically do week on week or camp on camp and how that structure looks um but when you look at periodization from a football perspective it has to include not just the physical but the tactical technical and psychological development of those players so sometimes there might be periods where you're just loading not necessarily just because it's a physical 
um, reason for it because it's a psychological reason for it or a technical or tactical or vice versa. And that that's the premise of tactical periodization, which is a model um, that is becoming more prevalent now within world football. It was um, a concept and method, uh, mythology um, that's being used uh, by Mourinho, Villas-Boas, um, uh, well, it's Brendan Rodgers. There's a lot of notable managers out there at the moment who are using this tactical periodization model. I'm not saying we're following that. We're, we're doing something slightly different. Um, but basically that only comes about by having a strong working relationship with the coaches. Um, and it, to be honest, it's, it's one of the best environments I've ever worked at for that. They, they are very understanding. We make sure that we hit everything we need from a physical, but also from, from the coaching perspectives as well. Um, we'll have meetings every day, um, pretty much. We'll, we'll discuss on what our philosophy is and how we want to play. We'll um, create our, our game model and use that as a reference point for everything we do on the pitch. Um, and it works really well. It's, it's, very, uh, it's a very fluid process. And that, that's come through education on, on both ways as well. It's important that to start that process, we have a full understanding of how the manager wants to play. Um, but then also that the, the coaching staff also have full understanding of what we mean when we talk about having an intensive day or an extensive day or we want to overload the mechanical load. That, that The only way we can actually action that is if they have an understanding of why we actually need that on, on particular days. Um, and also periodization as well over that week. Like, why is it important to drop the loading on, on match day minus one, match day minus two? Why is it important to push them on 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 your work days? Um, that that's that's uh, obviously the educational side of it is the starting process. But I, I couldn't be happier with this environment. It really is uh, a cohesive department behind the scenes. Obviously, sports science, it's at the very bleeding edge of what's um, happening in football alongside stuff like analytics. And it feels like everything at the bleeding edge of football at the moment, there are cohorts that decry it. And, you know, like I'm sure you've heard it, you know, like, oh, they're soft. They don't need to worry about all of that sports yeah. science. It's ruining the game, <laughs> yada, yada, yada. Like, what do you think when you hear that? And is it just a matter of education? Do you think that comes from people not understanding what you're actually doing? Exactly. Exactly. The, the amount of times I've heard in my career that sports science is killing the game is untrue. It's, it's um, yeah, they, there is this conception that sports scientists are there just to um, control loads and pull people out of training when in reality, that's not anything we want to do. Like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, to actually create a robust player, you need to keep pushing players more and more and more. Um, that's how you truly create resilience, by working harder on the pitch, by doing more in the gym, um, and actually building an athlete who can tolerate anything they come up against on a training pitch. Um, and that's, for the most part, what a lot of my work is. It's actually pushing for, for more on the training pitch. Like I said, there'll be times when you look at it from a, a four or five-year cycle window that you might need to turn around and say, do you know what? They need a break. But for the most part, we're pushing. We're pushing more and more and more because ultimately that's the only way you're going to create greatness um, by keep pushing them in that sense. And I doubt, hypothetically, Stadium Australia 2023 World Cup final, the Matildas versus 
well, let's just say England because I'm biased. I doubt you're going to be in a position to be able to, you know, message Tony Gustafsson in the 85th minute and say, right, Sam Kerr's done a minute. You've got to drag her off now. Yeah. No, you need to know your, you need to know your place. Um, look, at the end of the day, this is all recommendations. These are just using what is out there from a literature perspective, from a research perspective to say, this is what we should be following. Um, but there are certain situations where you just need, you've done what you need to do and sit back and, and, and see what happens. Um, it's always interesting with international football is that I mentioned this before that the loadings and intensities is significantly more than club football. Um, but it really is another level. To, uh, to actually compete on the world stage is something unknown anywhere else in the world. Champions League football is comparable, but even the World Cup is another step above. Um, one factor quite like is that, say, with the men's game, with the Euros, there's not been a single winner in the, in the Euros who hasn't had to go to extra time in that process. 100% of Euro past Euro winners have had to go into extra time. 50% um, of Euro winners have had to do extra time twice within that campaign. So to play 120 minutes of football successively during a, an international tournament, and then when you've got games coming thick and fast as well, it's you've got to be some athlete to cope and with the demands of that that environment. That's why I say for the most part we're pushing more and more and more because to actually compete in on that international stage, you have to be um, you have to be a, a very finely tuned athlete. Mm -hmm. Croatia in their last men's World Cup in Russia, perfect example of that, all the extra time that they had to play and they still exactly. made the final. Um, yeah. On that, and you talked about setting minimum physical standards that the players need to be trying to hit yeah. to make um, the Matilda squad. Currently in Australia, we don't have year-round programs for female footballers outside of the Matilda space. They'll spend some times with their A-League women's programs, then they'll either go overseas to a league, some leagues maybe not that good, maybe not that advanced. Others will go to their NPLW competitions around the country. From a sports science perspective, what sort of limitations does that place on players that are looking to reach those physical standards they need to crack into the Matildas and to be able to endure the crucible that is high-level international football? It the, the, There are positives and negatives. I think that some players who go from these differing environments, it's great for their for their careers because they get exposed to different playing styles and different environments and they become more of an accomplished person and athlete. Um, but one thing that is evident when you're just going from abroad to back home, abroad to back home, it, it creates any consistency. Um, and it's hard to focus on athletic development when you're changing the environment you're working in all the time and, and working, say, an environment where the facilities are limited or the sports staff are limited um, and then just be having a good program for a few months or then the staff might be recommended that you do a different program to what you were following before. Um, some clubs are certainly like that, that no, this is, we know best. And look, if I was working, or when I was working in the club, I always thought I knew best. Um, and it just kills that routine. So when you say, say we've got a hypothetical benchmark of where you need to be for aerobic capacity, um, or acceleration that that takes months years to develop to actually get to to a world-class stage if you're just starting off and to be going to do different environments where those bent those goalposts or objectives change depending on what club you're in it can hinder that development um 
that's where I think as a national team, we can help certainly with programming and giving them education on what they should do. So when they do go into a new environment, they know exactly what they need to be working on. They can have that conversation with the club environment they're going into and say, this is my objective. This is what I'm working on. Um, and certainly our relationship and national team with the teams they're going into is going to play a big part on that. Um, because once we educate the the clubs on what our objectives are and what our standards are on the international stage, people understand. And we're all after the same thing at the end of the day. We want the best um, version of that particular player. So I've, I've not come across a club who don't want to work collaboratively yet. Um, everyone wants to work together to get the best for that particular player. Even from my own experiences, national teams and club relationships is generally poor like there's not many national teams who have good rapport with with the clubs um but that's one thing we're actually priding ourselves at the moment is that we're having very open and transparent conversations with clubs we're working collaboratively collaboratively to to get the most out of them um and it, it's paying dividends i think it's been a major success at the moment that 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 approach we've had with clubs um so yeah, going back to your original question, yes, I think it, it does affect their athletic development and there needs to be a bit more consistency in the environments that they're playing in and competing in. Is it with the way that women's football has so it's so rapidly developed across the past decade already and it's it, it's going to, it looks like it's going to keep that pace. Do you think we've reached the point now where you just can't reach those physical levels you need anymore if you are in a semi-pro environment for half the year like some players still are um no no i think just because you're in a semi-pro environment doesn't mean you still can't reach your athletic potential there might be other limitations but um there will be a need to do extra work on top of that mm -hmm. um but there's certainly nothing to say physically you can't hit the levels that you need to in the national team environment um but like I said, the the intensity of the leagues that you play in varies significantly. So if you want to make that step up into the national team environment and the intensity of a league is nowhere comparable to national team environment, how do you prepare for that? Um, there's, that's not to say you can't physically become quicker or stronger or more powerful to levels that we're set in here, but you're just not exposed to the same match intensity that you would in the national team environment. Um, so, yeah. Does that make that, sense or shall I start that no, question no, no, no. again? No, 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 that makes sense. It was just, is that rewarding for you, Jack, in a way? Because the way it sounds like there, it's like in some, like a lot of football and, you know, I guess life in general, some things you're just not going to be able to do. But it feels like in your field of work, as long as the players you were, are working with are willing to work hard, you know, and they do that extra work and really their own limitations, I mean, there's obviously going to be some, some players are always going to run faster jump higher you know lift stronger and all that but it sounds like a lot of it is also how much work they can put in and how smart they uh, can be with their work and the like is that rewarding for you knowing that you know the players that you can help them along that journey yeah yeah certainly when you've got players who want that support and like i said with matildas it's 100 of the group they want to to be better um they want to improve and, and be the best they can be um, yeah, it certainly is rewarding. There are moments where a lot of the work we do goes on behind the scenes. Um, and I, I don't know why in football there's not really much coverage of it. There's, 
you don't really see exposure to what people are doing in the gym or what we're doing on the training pitch or how we profile, how we actually physically develop these players. Um, look, with with the Matildas, we've got a whole triple SM department. By triple SM, I mean sports science and sports medicine department who are world-class, like the world-class practitioners giving this support to the players. But it's, it's never touched on. And there are moments in your career where, say, there's a player coming back from a, a long-term injury and they step onto the pitch and they score a, a goal or, or do something within a game where you've invested so much time in their development, it does create a feeling for you as a practitioner that I, I don't know, it's, it's, that's what you do this job for. Um, or say you're working with a player and you break it into a national team environment or get their first call up. Um, these are things that we do our job for. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I won't give examples from other clubs, but yeah, there are uh, situations where you're just filled with joy of like, I, I played a part in that. But we don't we don't get much recognition. But now and again, you do feel within yourself. Oh, yeah, I've played a part in that, and yeah, it feels it it makes the job worthwhile. Occasionally, you get to speak to muppets like me on a podcast, and we can help share some of the work that you do. <laughs> um, exactly. but the last question I'd ask you, Jack, because you've spent a lot yeah. of time talking to me and, and uh, speaking to the listeners, so I appreciate it. So, the inner gym bro in me demands that I must ask must ask. Do the Matildas bench and who in the Matildas bench is the most? <laughs> the, uh, yeah, um, gym program is a little bit different now. <laughs> There's a layer, yeah, I wouldn't say that many of them are benching. Um, you might get the odd one or two doing some dumbbell bench press, but no, there's not a, a big lifting culture in that sense from, from upper body strength. Um, don't get me wrong, there's some very powerful athletes when you're looking at at squatting, deadlifting, um, yeah, there's uh, there's some strong, powerful athletes within this group. Who deadlifts the most? <laughs> you are sorry. Who, who deadlifts the most? Oh, I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you that. You can cut that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Jack Sharkey, I very much appreciate you uh, lifting uh, lifting the curtain a little bit and taking my, myself and the ESPN listeners through some of the behind the scenes stuff about how the Matildas, on a physical level, are preparing not just for games against sports against Spain and the Portuguese ahead, but the Women's World Cup on home soil in 2023 as well. Very much appreciate your time today. Not a problem at all. Pleasure to speak to you. The Matildas will face off with Spain and the Portuguese later in June as part of their preparations for the 2023 Women's World Cup. With a series of rotations expected in line with some of what Sharkey's talk of needing to manage players ahead of a busy period to come highlighted. You can keep abreast of everything related to the Matildas, the women's game around the globe, or anything else happening in Australian football on ESPN.com.au and its various international equivalents. Myself, Ante Jukic, Marissa Lordanik, and Stephanie Brunts, amongst those that will be bringing you all the news and views of the game down under. You can also subscribe to ESPN's specialty Australian football podcasts, The Far Post Pod, looking at everything in the women's game here in Australia, and the national curriculum, which... Well, we try to cover Australian football, but sometimes we get a little bit off the rails, um, wherever you happen to get your potties from. But for now, I'd like to thank you for joining us on another edition of ESPN's Beyond the Lead. It's time for a conversation between myself and the Matilda's Head of Sports Science, Jack Sharkey. 
I've been your host, Joey Lynch, and as a reminder, you can catch this episode, every other episode of Beyond the Lead, and all of ESPN's collection of podcasts and audio goodness wherever you do so happen to get them from. If you're enjoying Beyond the Lead or any of those other podcasts, be sure to subscribe, leave a famous five-star review, and help spread the word. But anyways, thanks for listening today, tomorrow, or whenever you happen to be tuning in. And do not fret, as I'll catch you soon for another deep dive into the world of sports as ESPN takes you beyond the lead very soon.